0: The startup scene, the dot-com scene in 1999-2000 in the UK was very, very sketchy. A bunch of companies with not much to them, basically, apart from that they were selling online. But making people take the leap from the real world to the virtual world and feeling comfortable in the virtual world for extended periods of time still seems hugely challenging to me. The interview didn't disappoint. I thought it was at first because he uh, he just suddenly turned up looking slightly shambolic and low-key. But then he began uttering phrases like, when we are a multi-planet species.
1: From the first-time founders to the funds that back them, innovation needs different. Our episode partner, HSBC Innovation Banking, is proud to accelerate growth for tech and life science businesses, creating meaningful connections and opening up a world of opportunity for entrepreneurs and investors alike discover more at www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com/en-gb Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly chat with the movers and shakers of the UK tech industry and the destination for all things UK tech related. And this week, I'm delighted to be joined by a personal friend and colleague of mine and a household name to many of you, Rory Keflin-Jones ex-BBC technology correspondent and author. Welcome, Rory.
0: Hi, Jane. Very excited to be talking to you again. looks like you've moved out of the kitchen where you used to broadcast from, but um, it's all looking very smart where you are.
1: Yes, we used to do a show on the World Service called Tech Tent. My kitchen featured heavily in it, as did my cat. And my cat I've had to put out because he's a bit meowy today, so I'm afraid... There'll be no interference from from the cat today.
0: (laughs) Well, my dog is very barky, but she's a a floor down, so probably won't be audible.
1: Well, we might talk about her later because she's an internet sensation, (laughs) so she can just about get into the podcast through her uh, on that basis. But first of all, I want to kind of hit you with a question about your long and illustrious time at the BBC, both as business correspondent and then tech correspondent. And I'm guessing well, I know that you saw many, many key milestones during that time. If you were to kind of pick out a few, both in terms of significant tech milestones, but also career reflections, so, you know, your best and your worst interview, what would you kind of highlight for me?
0: Oh, well, golly, that's that's going a, a long way back. So <laughs> although I was only a technology correspondent officially from 2007, I started getting interested in the late 90s. And it was because I was a bit bored doing Marks and Spencer's quarterly results for the fourth time. And there were these things called dot-coms emerging. There was a dot-com bubble. And I happened to be in New York just when Netscape was having its IPO, or just after that, and its shares were absolutely soaring. And I thought, what is this company? Which was, of course, the first sort of browser. And it was the launch of a whole new way of looking at the economy, really. Uh, so it was not just a technology moment. It was a huge business moment. So that that's, that that's kind of what set me off on that path. And I kept chasing after those stories and trying to do the big interviews with tech titans. I, I did my first interview with... Bill Gates on that trip to New York because he'd just got his autobiography out. Or it was a a book called The Way Ahead, I think. Let's be frank. He was not the most electrifying of interviewees. (laughs) He was a bit dull. But he did give me a book, signed. A signed copy of his book. To Rory, Good Luck With Computers. Bill Gates and I've always rather treasured that. It's kind of a slightly delphic comment. I've had reasonable luck with computers since, so thank you Bill. So I suppose that was <laughs> that was one la- landmark moment. Another was that I got very involved in covering still as a business correspondent mostly, the dot com bubble in the UK around 1999-2000. It was short short lived, but I've got great memories of I think it was March the 14th. 2000 when I covered the arrival of a company called lastminute.com on the stock market. And it was the last one out of the, the traps, as it were, because it, it managed to get its float away. And there was Martha Lane Fox and Brent Hoberman swigging champagne and celebrating. And that marked the day the dot-com bubble burst, actually, because their shares got away and immediately plummeted and everything else plummeted. So that, that was an interesting moment for me. And was also the basis of a book. I ended up writing a book about the the dot-com bubble in the UK, featuring all those extraordinary characters. And actually, briefly, slightly hysterically, the, the BBC decided to appoint me as what they called internet correspondent. I think around that date... Um my wife, who's a quite a distinguished economist, always said that was a sell signal. And so it proved to be, because three months later, it was a smoking wasteland. And the BBC said, oh, the internet seems to be over and um, you better go back to your old job. <laughs> so that, that that was fun. If I spool forward to 2007, when they decided the internet was back and they'd call me technology correspondent, the first story I did then was probably a career highlight because we got sent out to CES, the actually rather horrible tech fest in Las Vegas, which I loved for a while and then decided I've had enough of that. But that first time we went mob handed and I said, I know we're spending a lot of money here, but why don't we go over to San Francisco just for a day to see... What Steve Jobs is doing at his Mac World, because he's too snooty to come to Las Vegas. And I persuaded them to spend the money, and it was money well spent because it was the best single story we ever got out of that trip and any other trip to the West Coast over the coming years because it was the launch of the iPhone which was the moment that changed everything, really, and uh, really framed my next sort of 14, 15 years as technology correspondent, the the uh, the arrival of the internet in your pocket in, in various forms, obviously not just the iPhone, the Android followed, but... Uh, it was, it was a, a world-changing moment, I suppose.
1: Absolutely. And before we talk about that, let's just rewind to the dot-com bubble that you mentioned. And actually, you mentioned last minute and uh, Martha Lane Fox, one of the guests on our show was Martha. And I asked her this question. I'll ask you a similar question. You know, it feels like dot-com bubble could be bursting again in terms of the economic situation for startups isn't great at the moment, but there are many, many, many out there professing all kinds of technology especially in the area of artificial intelligence a lot of hype out there do you think there are any parallels between what you saw back then when the dot-com bubble burst and and the startup ecosystem now
0: i, I think it's there are some similarities but there are also a huge number of differences and the, the, the biggest difference is that the the startup scene the dot-com scene in 99 2000 in the uk was very very sketchy a bunch of companies with not much to them basically apart from that they were selling online you know very few of them were, were really revolutionary ideas you know things like click mango i remember with Joanna Lumley as its sort of figurehead selling sort of cosmetics and and stuff online i suppose britain didn't really know about online commerce at that time and and it was all seen as quite exciting but it was it was pretty flaky and the kind of people that were getting involved were generally not, or at least the people running the companies, were not technology people, but were, were marketing types. And one thinks of Boo.com, which was a wonderful crash-and-burn story, a sort of Swedish couple who set up this sort of fashion site, and their website, which was incredibly exciting and flashy, took about five minutes to load when any, anybody went to it, so nobody ever got around to buying anything, and that went pop very quickly. So I think it was a lot less professional, a lot less techie the valuations, the valuation issue is still there, and it (laughs) it was it was where the time we learnt. I mean, it may have been even crazy then that profits didn't matter. It was it was just any signs of growth. Although I remember writing when last minute floated that it actually had the revenues of a decent sized country pub, uh, and was yet valued as if it was going to be Walmart or Tesco's or or whatever terms of retailing
1: I guess now if you look at some of the companies that are are perhaps getting overinflated it's in the fintech area isn't it what's your kind of feelings around what we're seeing going on with cryptocurrency which I know you've written a lot about in your time
0: Uh, I am extraordinarily biased against cryptocurrency because I've had my fingers burnt not not as an investor but as in terms of stories so often and Bitcoin goes up, it goes down. I still think it's got no intrinsic value. The the technology beneath it, the blockchain, I think it was probably in 2014 that I first went to a, a Bitcoin conference where somebody said, you don't need to worry about Bitcoin. Blockchain, the technology beneath it, is actually going to change the world and is bigger than the internet. And I've been waiting ever since for that to come true. I just think it is so infested with snake oil merchants with a number of whom I've had uh, unfortunate dealings. I find it difficult to believe in any of the, the startups. What's interesting about it, though, is that whereas in, in a number of industries, the incomers have really disrupted things and the, the, old, the old companies have died, banking is so robust, is, is well, you might say so p- overpowerful, that effectively they've managed to buy any fintechs that have threatened to... Uh, to, to disrupt them, so there's been less disruption, more kind of uh, absorption in, in the finance industry than in, than in other industries.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And I want to talk now, though, about something that we I have mentioned just now about AI. Again, something that we wrote about many years ago. It's been going for a long time, but it only feels like this year that we've seen that sort of rising and rising. And I suppose the the the, the parallels with the internet are, are fairly key in terms of. The internet changed the way everything society was run, and, and and AI has the potential to do that as well. So I was just really interested to get your sort of thoughts on both the potential for it and the risks for it. I know that you did one of your seminal interviews with uh, Stephen Hawking before he died, and he was warning about the risks.
0: That was an interview that started the panic. I almost I almost credit myself because it was twenty fourteen, and he said that if artificial general intelligence came along, AI that could do everything, then humanity would basically be obsolete. I mean, obviously, that debate has gone on. But as we all know, the the big thing that's changed everything is large language models, and in particular, chat GPT, because they brought home to people sort of kind of graphic evidence of what the technology could do. Although, I still think that there are some question marks over just how extensive its application will be and how how well integrated into companies AI is going to be. It got to a point even before before I gave up the BBC technology job where every company in every press release mentioned AI. You just had to be in it. I actually interviewed a company the other day, which was doing really innovative things with with healthcare, monitoring healthcare via smartphones, developing algorithms to monitor symptoms of Parkinson's. And I said to them after a while, I think this is the first presentation I've been to in the last five years, where two letters haven't come up, AI. And they just said, oh, yeah, we, we use machine learning, we use machine learning, but we don't make a big fuss over it. And I thought that was a a mature and um, useful, sensible approach, under-hyping it rather than over-hyping it.
1: And you talk then about, you know, Parkinson's and how you're writing now quite a lot about health tech. Do you see wearables as being a, a huge thing? We've got the Vision Pro launch coming next year. How do you see that playing out? Is that going to take off in ways that perhaps hasn't yet? We're all maybe wearing watches, but we're less comfortable wearing headsets, aren't we?
0: Yeah. I mean, is tech affecting healthcare? Yes, very much so. And I'm hopeful that it'll do do more, but I'm less certain about smartwatches than smartphones and certainly less convinced about headsets than about smartwatches because the the change in behaviour that's needed is so intense, particularly with headsets, that I'm slightly cautious about seeing great applications for it. I mean, it, it's quite funny, isn't it, that, that Mark Zuckerberg spent so much time a year ago talking about the metaverse, changing his company's name to, to Meta, yeah. and suddenly along comes ChatGPT and. The metaverse appears to be forgotten. We're all we're all back onto AI, and there may be you know elements where they overlap, but that idea that we'll be living in this virtual world seems to have receded a bit. Every now and then I see something which I think, gosh, that is a really good use of it. For instance, I had a demo of medical training. The training of medical students is an incredibly expensive business and involves bodies, and bodies are quite expensive to buy and. I was given this demo whereby uh, I was wearing a, it was a Microsoft HoloLens uh, and I was shown a virtual patient sitting on a chair scratching himself and with his vital signs on, on a chart next to him. And the medical students, of which I was one, had to walk around and work out what was going on. It was really impressive. It turned out he'd had an operation and he was allergic to penicillin. That's why he was itching so much. It was very graphic and very real and you could see... The application for it. But, but making people take the leap from the real world to the virtual world and feeling comfortable in the virtual world for extended periods of time still seems hugely challenging to me. I don't know if you remember that we had a colleague, a boss, who for some months started meeting another colleague over a game of virtual golf with his headset and, 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 and swore blind that this this was the future. And then a few months later, we said to him, what's happened to that headset? Oh, he's, he's said, rather embarrassed. <laughs> it's, it's, it's gathering dust on the shelf. Uh, maybe playing golf every morning in the virtual world wasn't the best way of spending my time.
1: <laughs> yes, it's, it's not quite there yet, is it? But perhaps that, that will change with the Vision Pro. HSBC Innovation Banking, our partner for this episode provides commercial banking services, expertise and insights to the technology, life science and healthcare, private equity and venture capital industries. To find out why innovation needs different, go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com/en-gb. Let's go back again to the iPhone launch which much of the work that you've done and much of where we are now is down to that little phone that we all carry around with us. Talk me through what it was like to be there for the launch of this piece of tech that we all now take so much for granted.
0: Well it was an extraordinary day. I think it was my first taste of that kind of technology unveil or launch or keynote where it's more like a kind of. uh, evangelical church service than a press conference. That a lot of the audience are fans rather than, you know, uh, objective uh, observers. Because we, we got there to the Moscone Center in January 2007 in the morning, and there were people queuing outside who were big Apple fans who were already tremendously excited. And we got inside, and Steve Jobs walked onto the stage with his wireframe glasses, his black polo neck, his jeans, and said nothing for a moment and paused and looked down at his feet and then looked up and said, we're going to make some history here today. And I was, being a cynical old British hack, went, oh, please. But everybody else went, rah, rah, rah. And he then produced, I mean, it's its still worth looking back at. It, it is a virtuoso performance, the the, the event where he, he unveils this device. And he has this kind of refrain of we're going to launch not not one device, but, but three devices here, a touchscreen music player, an internet device and a phone, a touchscreen music player, an internet device and a phone, something like that. And he kept on this, this with this refrain. And then of course, the, the reveal was that they were all one device, the iPhone. Everyone goes completely mad. And by the end, cynical old British hack in me had been kind of slightly won over because it was such a departure, such a an attractive, good-looking product. And I knew that mm. because I was rushing out to, to kind of try and feed to London because we were eight hours behind and whatever. And the news desk in London called me, and the news desk was never interested in technology stories. Just said, usually it was, when are you going to feed? Not, what have you got? But this time they said, can you get hold of that device? Because it looks amazing because the pictures were coming in over the feed. And I said, of course, I can't get hold of it. It's not out for six months and Apple never lets anybody near anything. But then I had a brainwave, which was that we'd been offered an interview, not with Steve Jobs, but with his deputy, Phil Schiller, sort of rather nice, slightly tubby marketing chief. And I'd said, yeah, yeah, we'll do that, thinking, no, we won't and i changed my mind and i rushed back and said could we see mr phil mr phil schiller please and they produced him and i said before we start mr schiller have you got the phone oh yeah can i borrow it for a moment and i stood there holding it for my piece to camera did the interview with phil schiller i'm afraid we dropped it <laughs> uh, and uh, that was the that, that was the piece to camera on the 10 o'clock news and a few days later john norton the observer technology columnist wrote in, in his sunday column That I looked like a a medieval French peasant holding a piece of the one true cross, (laughs) which (laughs) was quite a good line.
1: It's an interesting thing, though, isn't it, that we saw quite a bit of development and change, but the iPhone hasn't changed a great deal in how it looks. You know, the one I've got in front of me now isn't that far removed from the one that you saw back then. Yeah. Do you think that we've reached peak... Mobile innovation is it now just about the things that we're putting on it and not the
0: not the design of the phone? Oh yeah, I mean it, it's it's I don't think its design needs to change. It, it got bigger and bigger and bigger for a while, didn't it? And then people decided maybe it doesn't need to get that big. And they all look the same classically. All all mobile phones are basically slabs of glass, and it's what what you do with them. But new, what is extraordinary is. I mean whenever anybody asks me what's next I've I've always said well more smartphone the smartphone keeps developing new ways I mean, somebody just told me today about something that I didn't know anything about that's in the phone which is called personal voice which is something that will al- allow you to preserve your voice and have it the phone or any of your Apple devices read stuff out in your voice which may not have an application for most people but for people who are losing their voice for for all mm-hmm. sorts of reasons. I mean, Parkinson's, one of the symptoms is people can actually lose the strength, certainly the strength of their voice, is is, is a, a really interesting development.
1: That is interesting. And do you think that we will see it being used more for AI stuff? You know, you've talked about replicating your voice. We've also seen a lot of work around replicating yourself creating a kind of AI version of yourself. Is all that going to be played out through through your phones?
0: Well, don't forget that a lot of the advances in AI are all about data, about crunching through masses of data. And what is a, a smartphone but um, a massive collector of all sorts of data, you know, physical data? This company I've met recently that I was talking about is is planning to monitor Parkinson's using all the physical data that the sensors on a on a phone can collect and that that will apply in all sorts of areas so uh, it will just be part of the whole sort of production line uh, of new AI applications really Uh, the sort of the 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 engine of it both producing the data and crunching it in different ways.
1: Now I can't let you go without talking about Elon Musk I'm afraid Yeah. yeah. Uh, (laughs) another person that you've interviewed a person that never seems to be far from the headlines. And of course, now the head of X, which when it was Twitter, was obviously something that you were very involved in in, and a big tweeter. So let's talk about, first of all, the the time that you met Musk, and then we'll talk a bit about, you know, his latest acquisition.
0: (laughs) So I met Elon Musk in uh, January 2016, and I... I'd arranged an interview or, or, or sold the BBC that we would do an interview as a way of getting them to fund my trip to Las Vegas for this annual tech fest, which they were more and more disinclined to to spend money on. And I said, don't worry, we'll as well as going to the fair, we will interview Elon Musk. And he's, he's the most interesting man in tech. And they'd vaguely heard of him. I said, oh, OK. And what I didn't reveal was that I hadn't actually fixed the interview. And it wasn't until we got out to Las Vegas that the final call came through that, yes, you can see Elon Musk. So I was tremendously excited about this and we drove me, me and my producer and Cameron drove in a a borrowed Tesla from Las Vegas to Los Angeles to do the interview and uh, tried out the autopilot system on the freeway uh, got a bit terrified because the the car tried to leave the freeway at one point and met him in his rather futuristic design center on the outskirts of LA and the interview didn't disappoint. I thought it was at first because he uh, he just suddenly turned up looking slightly shambolic and low key. But then he began uttering phrases like when we are a multi-planet species and suggesting that one day soon owning a car that you had to drive yourself would be like owning a horse, something you did for sentimental rather than practical reasons. So we got a great interview out of him. I still did think he was a little bit flaky then. And I wrote a, a blog about the encounter Uh, describing as bonkers but brilliant. And the PR man that i have been dealing with was rather cross and said this was disrespectful and didn't really take it on board when I said, oh, this side of the Atlantic bonkers is a term of great affection. But ever since then, he's become more bonkers and I've grown increasingly impatient with him. First, all of the crypto nonsense he kept pushing. And then I just hate what he's done to Twitter, because I am, as you say, an incredibly devoted tweeter. I've been on it since the summer of 2007, so I've built up a huge network of people I follow and the people who follow me, and I have found it incredibly useful over the years, professionally as well as personally. And now it's just so infected with nonsense and trolling and spam and porn bots that I I keep looking for an escape hatch but uh, at the moment I, I can't find one that suits me
1: and you can't escape because your dog is now uh, we mentioned your dog at the start of the show and she's become a massive twitter
0: she's what's a, the word she's a phenomenon yeah I mean I
1: phenomenon that's the word
0: <laughs> yeah every every morning my wife says to me have you fed the beast yet, by which she means have I put a picture of Sophie up there? because if, I, if I've not put a picture of hashtag Sophie from Romania, as she's known, the world will want to know why. At least a hundred thousand people join my Twitter account just because of Sophie. and wherever I go, wherever i have got another book out at the moment, much a, 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 a sort a of personal memoir, people come along because because of Sophie. So yeah, I've got to, I've got to take Sophie somewhere useful that's not Twitter.
1: Yes, well, I'm not quite sure what's going to replace Twitter. We've talked about an awful lot. I'm going to ask you for one last prediction. We've covered automated cars, the metaverse, AI, a little bit about Twitter, mobile phone technology. What's your prediction? You know, we're at the end of the year now. We always have to do a bit of a look ahead in tech, don't we, and predict what we think is going to be the next big thing. If you were going to pick something out of uh, all of those things we've discussed today, what what would it be?
0: Well, I'm going to pick something where... It's more hope than belief. I am very preoccupied with writing about health and technology, and I'm very concerned about the use of data. I'm in favour of the use of data to aid medical research and so on, and I'm in favour of people being encouraged to share their data. So I, I am I am predicting that there will be a mass movement to give patients access and ownership of their health data and encourage them to do useful things with it. And I'm hoping that happens into 2024.
1: I think we'd all agree that would be a very good use, especially of of data which up-to-date hasn't necessarily always been used for the best. But that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Rory, for joining me for that amazing walk down tech's memory lane. (laughs) And that's also all for this series of the UKTM podcast. We'll be back in the new year. But for those news junkies who can't wait, you can, of course, keep up to date with all the latest UK tech developments at www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN on LinkedIn and X. And you can also get in touch with me on those platforms at Jane Wakefield with your comments and suggestions about the show. But until next time, it's goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by HSBC Innovation Banking, the power behind the UK's forward thinkers, future makers and leap takers. They're helping to ignite the bold ideas that reshape our world. Go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com/en-gb to find out how innovation needs different.